0: When we look to government as the arbiter of human rights, that's that's when we end up with human rights abuses, um, and and we've seen this throughout history. Um, slavery was legal in the United States. It wasn't something that was that was done on the side. This was a legalized activity, um, and it was considered the right of men to own other men. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.
1: Welcome to Outstanding, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas of the shapeless. I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. It's my pleasure to be with you. Today, we're going to talk about a Supreme Court decision out of Alabama. That, depending on your perspective, is the greatest threat to women's rights this country has ever seen, or a step toward coherence in the law when it comes to what it means to be a person. Now, the court held that the death of an embryo was a wrongful death, and therefore the parents of the deceased embryo could sue because, as Dr. Seuss would say, a person is a person no matter how small. Now, there is no dispute that under Alabama law, if a child in the womb is injured, the parents can sue. But in this case, IVF laboratories argued that the law contained an unwritten exception for what they called extrauterine children. And now what they meant is that because embryos were not in a womb, they were not children for the purposes of the statute. And instead, they were property. Now, the court disagreed with the IVF facility's interpretation, and they said that the law contained no such exception. And therefore, the embryos are, in fact, people for the purposes of this statute. This ruling has set off a firestorm of reactions. Politicians in both political parties have condemned the decision and suggested it's a threat to. People's ability to, families' abilities to have children. Others have claimed the Alabama Supreme Court is trying to institute a theocracy. What does this case mean and what does it not mean in our ongoing efforts to understand what it means to be human? Joining me for this conversation today is Mary Zoc, the director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Joseph.
1: Well, there's a lot to get through here Uh, before I, um, you know, delve into the facts anymore. I just want to know what your reaction was when you saw this decision.
0: I was thrilled. I mean, I think, you know, this was a huge step um, in the right direction for recognizing the dignity of every human being um, beginning at the moment of fertilization. Um, I, I think this was a a huge step in um, in helping America recognize that that people cannot be treated as commodities or products um, that that people are an end in and of themselves um, and and they need to be treated as such. Um, so I was I was thrilled with the opinion. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to uh, try to unpack the facts a little bit um, for a couple of reasons because this case arose in a very fairly narrow uh, context and uh, a lot of criticism about this decision has uh, has suggested that this is an activist court trying to you know create their theocracy impose their narrow view of what it means to be human on the whole country and a little bit in defense of just the Alabama Supreme Court's um, Uh, decision to even speak on this issue, they really had no choice because the question was asked of the Supreme Court, is an embryo outside the womb a person for the purposes of this statute? Now, um, there's a lot of legal um, details here that we could get confused about. And I'm going to try to explain these in a way that people will understand without getting too far into the minutiae, because not everybody went to law school. But essentially, this is not a criminal uh, statute this is um in in the realm of tort which is just kind of personal injury uh law nobody's going to prison over this but the question is because alabama law allows for a wrongful death statute and people understand this like in the context of a car accident now if if somebody's driving drunk and they you know kill your child um we know that that's a criminal act Um, because drunk driving is a violation of the law and there's a violation of the law. So that person could, should um, face criminal penalties. But in addition to that, in the realm of civil law, and and lawyers refer to that as tort law, that you can sue uh, for the damages inflicted by the death of this child. And that civil law arena is where this comes up. And so we know that wrongful death has long been a a cause of action that parents have had if their child dies. And so the question here that was brought to the court was can parents sue for wrongful death because the embryos were accidentally destroyed and it was an accident inside the laboratory. Apparently there was a patient who got someplace they shouldn't have been. They picked up a beaker that was kind of frozen and dropped it. And these embryos were destroyed. So it wasn't claimed to be uh, a, an intentional act, but what they're arguing is that a negligent act that led to the death of these embryos, which are children. So I hope that wasn't too much fact to understand what's going on here. So the court simply had to answer this question in the statute that um, allows a cause of action for wrongful death. Is an embryo outside the womb a person for the purposes of these cases? And the IVF laboratories argued that no, those aren't people because they're extra uterine. Now it's unambiguous. I mean, nobody disputes that that is not actually written into the statute. Nowhere did the Alabama legislature write, this only applies to children who have been implanted. But because the statute um I don't know this, but I suspect that the statute was actually written uh, before this was really an issue. And and technology is providing all sorts of new kind of facts for us to deal with. Um, But Mary, um, in that context, what is the um, kind of implication for this decision, do you think, around IVF? Because people have been saying essentially um, this is going to destroy people's ability to have families. Is that true or not?
0: No. And in fact, I think one thing people need to keep in mind is that this case was brought by a family that did IVF. So this wasn't this isn't some um, anti-IVF militant person who is just trying to shut down the IVF industry. This is a family who who I imagine struggled with uh, conceiving, chose to do IVF and had had embryos that were in the care of the IVF clinic, that that they had entrusted their, their children, their hopes, and their their child's future too. And, and then that clinic was so negligent that a random person was able to get back into the storage area. You can't go to a CVS and get a pack of razors without calling someone from the front desk to unlock it. But at this clinic, a, a random patient could get back to this place where these embryos were at at minimum the thought of th- this family paid f- over over $15,000 likely more to to engage in this process and and so at minimum this is this is a huge financial loss to them but that doesn't even account for the emotional toil that IVF takes on on a woman or the physical torture that that her body goes through during this process and and you know, both proponents of IVF and people who are opposed to IVF will tell you that the process itself for a woman is is horrendous. And yeah. and so for a clinic to behave that cavalierly with that couple's future, that's absolutely ridiculous.
1: Now you raised an issue there that the clinics themselves raised because I don't think they were necessarily claiming there was no injury. They would have acknowledged that these embryos were the result of an expense, but it's very different if these are people than if these are just property. And they were arguing this is property, there's been a property damage, and of course, property damage is going to be a lot less than if we determine this is a child. Um, What say you about that distinction?
0: I would say, you know, there's been one other time in the history of America where we have confused who is a person and who is a piece of property. And Alabama, unfortunately, was on the wrong side of history with that one. And thankfully, the Supreme Court of Alabama has learned something from history. And here they got it right. The question is, is the rest of the country going to follow or is the rest of the country going to, again, be on the wrong side of history?
1: What are the implications of that? Because this, this to me is a, um, the reaction to this is not because these particular parents would be compensated for the loss of these embryos. Do you agree that the, the panic, if that's the right word to re- use to describe the response, is really because people immediately understand the implications of saying an embryo is a person?
0: I mean, I think that that has to be unsettling for um, for anyone who's been involved in the IVF industry. If, if if you know about IVF, you know the it doesn't have a very high success rate. Um, you know that there are often excess embryos created. Often, if not always, excess embryos created that are that are stored in in the U.S. Right now, there's over a million of these embryos in storage. And, you know, I think for, for parents who have done IVF, I think it has this question of is that my child that is sitting in a freezer right now? That has to cross their mind, at least when they're writing the check to pay for the, the freezing to continue. Um, but I imagine much more frequently than that. And, and I think that that is something that, that parents struggle with mightily. And the question of what do I do with those embryos if, yeah. if they are in fact children, but but I think the uh, more of the panic is being fueled by the IVF industry itself, that for years has operated as the wild west and has had no regulations whatsoever, and now they're recognizing, my gosh, we are making millions, exploiting families and exploiting the the good hopes and dreams and and desires of men and women to be mothers and fathers. Um, And now we might just make a little less money. Um, And so I think that that is what is really fueling the, the hysteria over this ruling.
1: Well, in one sense, this was a very good legal decision just because the Alabama Supreme Court recognized that there was no extra uterine exception written into the law. But of course, what that invites is lawmakers in Alabama to write that exception into the law. And we've already seen since that decision uh, indications that legislators want to do specifically that. So they could go into the wrongful death statute and say that an unimplanted embryo is not a child for the purposes of this statute, and then it would be the law, and then you'd no longer be asking the Alabama Supreme Court. They just said, this is what the law says right now, but of course, legislative bodies can go change that. Are you concerned that that will will be the response politically to this decision where legislatures across the country, because right now there appears to be bipartisan support for that position, will simply go and, and take the position that unimplanted embryos are not, in fact, people.
0: I, I am very concerned about that. I think, you know, anytime that we put a qualification on personhood aside from, um, from, gen- from being a human being, um, we, we put ourselves at grave risk for horrific atrocities. Um, and you know, I think that this is one of those instances where we have to think, well, what other than being a human, um, gives a, Give someone the rights of being a person, and and it can't be location because if that's true, then when science advances to the point where an unborn child can be both both conceived and uh, gestated outside the womb, um, or you know a, a baby who maybe at some point we have the technology where a baby is able to be removed from the womb for some period of time and then re-implanted in the womb it, it would be very problematic um to say that during that time when that child has moved from the womb or or that child who was just completely outside the womb um, that that's not a human being and then then we have a whole class of people who are who don't qualify as persons um which you know there there are um Countries throughout history who have done that. And and that uh, is something that we all recognize as tragic and horrific.
1: I think we saw that scene in The Matrix. And I think it's been a number of kind of sci-fi movies where we have these essentially baby factories where you have these children being gestated in laboratories they're in kind of these little pods now i don't know how far we are from that scientifically from that being realistic where you can take a, a a baby from an embryo to a fully formed 9 10 month baby who is ready to live outside of a you know a pod or whatever do you know the answer to that like how how far away is that scientifically
0: i mean it's it's hard to say how how far because you know, scientific leaps happen um, very, very quickly sometimes. And sometimes they take forever. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it's really hard to say how far, but, but we do know they're working on it, right? We know that right. that it is earlier and earlier that they can recreate the womb environment and, and that that's actually been really good for, for babies who have been born premature, that, that, you know, we have moved the age of viability back further and further. Right. Um, so, so that is a a positive, a good, but when it when it could be used for evil, um, yeah. is what what we need to be concerned about.
1: Yeah, and and I think we're what our goal is as people who try to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and not just reach a conclusion that seems convenient at the at the moment is we're trying to understand what is true and we're trying to be consistent when you when you suggest a a principle upon which a decision should be made in this case, that if it's not in utero, then it is not a person. Well, how does that apply in a different fact set? And what we're looking forward to here is this world where you have children who were, um, who were conceived in a laboratory where they became embryos, then they are implanted into these essentially, uh, technological wombs, and they gestate for eight, nine months, and you can look through this womb, and you can see what is very clearly a baby, are we still going to apply this principle that, well, it's not inside a womb, so it's not a person yet. And in that situation, it doesn't make sense. It feels different, because you can see the actual baby there, as opposed to uh, embryos, which we don't recognize as looking particularly human when we see them in a Petri dish, presuming that's where we see them. And I've never actually seen where they hold them, but I assume it's something like that is, is this really just a, um, an uncomfortableness with, um, hurting something that looks like a person as opposed to hurting something that doesn't look like a person.
0: I mean, I think that that's, that's, uh, at the crooks of the abortion debate as well, right? If you, yeah. when when I was on my way to the hospital with my um, now seven month old baby girl, I was in the district of Columbia and there on my way to the hospital, I could have stopped off at Cesare Sant'Angelo's abortion clinic and he would have happily taken my $600 or whatever it was to yeah. end my child's life. Um, and that makes people really squeamish because everyone knows that she looked like a baby at that point. But if I had done the same thing when I was just six weeks pregnant with her, it would have been the same yeah. little baby girl who wouldn't exist, uh, or well, who yeah. would exist, but who would have been killed. Yeah. Uh,
1: the the really difficult question, I think, for those who want to argue that because it's extrauterine, it is not a person, is what is it then? And that is the the challenge that we keep running into, because I think you and I are sympathetic to the idea that that doesn't look like what I consider to be a person, but what is it? And logic, I think, requires us to ultimately recognize as a scientific matter, it is just a very, very, very young person, because I don't know what else it is, if it is not a very, very young person. But that raises the question, and Mary, I'm interested in what you think about this, is it inconsistent to be pro-IVF knowing what we know about how that happens and also pro-life?
0: I would say yes. Um, I, I think that um, what we know about IVF is that it treats human beings as a product and not as an and of themselves, That that human beings are something to be purchased um, that you pay the clinic and they produce a product for you. What's that product? Your child. Um, and and that's not to say that couples who have done IVF treat their child as if they were a product. I don't think that that's the case. I think that couples who have done IVF uh, really desperately desire to have a child and that they love that child um, immensely. And, you know, that child is created in the image of God. And I think that their parents recognize that. Um, but, But where I think the industry um, twists things is, is that it makes, it turns the good of having a child into a God and, and it allows um, anything else to be sacrificed for that good. And, and that's not, that's not a place that we should be Um, where, you know, we're creating multiple embryos. We're testing them to see, well, which ones are, which ones are um, perfect enough to implant, which ones should just be discarded, um, because they have, you know, a genetic abnormality, um, which, well, if I only have one shot, maybe I want a baby girl or maybe I want a baby boy, you know, which ones, which one do I pick and which one do I, do I condemn to death or to permanent freezing? Um, you know, those are questions that, that, uh, I think people have to think through as, as they're contemplating IVF, um, and I think it's really hard to think through them. And, you know, my husband and I have not struggled with the cross of infertility. And so I can't pretend that I would have heroic virtue if if I were faced with that cross. I hope I would. Um, but I can't pretend to know what that's like. Um, but I do know the reality of what's right and wrong. And, and so my heart goes out to those parents um, because I imagine that that was Incredibly challenging, but the industry needs to be put in a place where it can't prey upon those good desires.
1: There's a lot about the IVF industry that I don't know, but I have seen people in my life who've struggled with infertility who have gone the IVF route and who are Christians who would claim to be pro life. Is there a way to? do that procedure in a way that doesn't intentionally plan on the elimination of embryos and these are just questions i don't know about how the process works but is it is there an a consistent way to do ivf in a way that recognizes that life begins at conception not whenever i recognize it or whenever there's implant, implantation
0: so there's a number of issues um surrounding uh, IVF even before you get to um, the creation of the embryo. So when when we think about how sperm is attained, you know what what is the the IVF industry doing for that? So there there are ways that it can be done, but the most common is um, through masturbation and the use of pornography. These IVF clinics have um, have libraries of pornography, um, and and so you know just starting right there before. Before the embryo is conceived, we can see the exploitation of people occurring there, and and the the um, damage that that does to a marriage. When when we think about the woman with the egg retrieval process, we know that she's pumping her body full of hormones to um, artificially stimulate the ovary to produce that egg, and that that retrieval process can be very dangerous for her. Um, that you know, the, the risk of ectopic pregnancy and of miscarriage is significantly increased with IVF. Um, and, and so that's all, that's all before we even have the creation of the embryos. Um, most IVF clinics, um, many, I should say, IVF clinics will not even agree to do um, just a one embryo creation at a time. It's cost effective for them to create many embryos at a time. Um, it's it's uh, creates a, a higher quote unquote success rate. Um, and so, while a couple may um, think or maybe trying their hardest to only create one embryo, the reality is you're you're trusting someone else to To take your commitment to only creating one as seriously as you do, and that person has a financial interest in um, in things going differently. So I, I think it's placing a lot of trust in in a third party. Um, you know, the other thing with with that third party is uh, there's no there's no you have no control over whether or not. That is actually your spouse and your egg and sperm. Um, whether you know, we hear about clinic mix-ups all the time. We hear about the IVF doctor who 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 pushed his sperm onto, or I don't even know what the correct word was, but um, who used his own sperm in the fertilization of a, a hundred um, embryos. And and so there's. There's all these exploitive parts of the industry that make it really hard to imagine that it would actually be possible to do without um, a person being exploited at some point along the way. Yeah.
1: Now, there's some connections I want to try to make with other things happening around the the life issue and even just kind of human rights I want to talk about with you. Um, one of them is personhood theory, Broadly, And I know this is something that you know something about, but I'd like to help people kind of understand how this particular fact pattern that we're dealing with in in IVF and whether an unimplanted embryo is a person, how that connects to personhood theory more broadly. Because personhood theory is simply an idea which which really is the primary argument made in support of abortion generally is that you're not a person – until you have certain capacities that the reason an embryo is very clearly not a, a human is because it can't do anything. it doesn't know it's it doesn't know it exists, it's not sentient. it doesn't not only does it not look like a person, it, it's like it, it can't breathe, it doesn't have lungs at that you know, for a few days it doesn't have a heart. it has nothing that we would that we would identify with humanity with a person. And so because it lacks those, Functions, we don't have to worry about it. It's not a person. It has to develop certain functions. Mary, what is the, and and on on some level, that's like, yeah, that makes sense. That rings true to me. What is the um, problem if we adopt that understanding of what it means to be a person consistently?
0: So, yeah, so you described it perfectly. And and there are ethicists around the country, uh, Marianne Warren, Peter Singer, Um, these are two Peter Singer from Princeton university. He said something like there should be a period of, um, of, I want to say he said 27 days. Um, but he might've even, he might've even stretched it up to three years. Um, and and I I
1: think he actually said a three-year-old is a gray case. I think I've seen a case like that. It's like, it's like a question as to whether a three-year-old has enough capacity to actually be considered human, but continue. Yes
0: yeah and and so when we when we move aside from the um human dna as being the or having the the human genes as being the sole criteria for personhood then we end up killing all sorts of people that that everyone would look at today and say oh yeah of course that's a that's a person Right. So it allows that it allows things like slavery to occur. Um, it allows the, the Holocaust to occur. Um, it allows the Rwandan genocide. You know, this this idea that there could be some characteristic of yours. Um, we've seen the the emergence of assisted suicide um, around the country and you know this this idea that if a person has incurable suffering. That they should be able to end their lives. Well, you know, in other countries, we see that this has been extended to well, what if someone is, has incurable suffering, but they're not completely um, conscious or they're not in control. Or we saw, you know, the Terry Schiavo case, um, that that certain states of a person's life um, put them in a position where they no longer meet those criteria. The criteria yeah. of Um, qualifying as a person, and that's a really dangerous territory.
1: Yeah, And, and we know that while when you're very young you lack certain capacities, people also develop those capacities, then they lose those capacities. And they could be in a car accident or they could fall and they could have a brain injury, or they could simply become old and feeble and lose the ability to do things they could do previously And the question then is, once you lose a certain capacity, if you have dementia and there are things that you're not aware of, does that mean you cease to be human? And if we answer that question in the affirmative, in an effort to be consistent with our belief that an embryo cannot be a person because it cannot do certain things, we wade into very, very dark territory. Where, oh, yeah, you've lost this capacity, you crossed the line, you can no longer remember your name or the names of any of your children, and the committee determined that's what you re- is required for you to be sentient enough to be a person, so you are no longer a person deserving of human rights. Now, this you know, exercise that we're engaged in, though, is a cross that must be borne by people who care about what is true, who actually believe the truth exists, because we must desire consistency because if we're going to argue for that that position in one context we have to apply it to other contexts to see if it actually works that is not a burden borne by people who don't believe the truth exists though and we live in a world filled by people filled with people who say if it feels true then it is true So I am, it doesn't feel like a human embryo is a person. So I will assert that it's not a person because it doesn't look like a person. It can't do any personal things. But am I willing to apply that same argument to people who are very old and, you know, can't do certain person things anymore? And maybe the answer is no. Maybe even in worse situation, the answer is yes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna desire consistency, and then I do something like what Peter Singer says, which is, well, at a couple of days old, they're no more human than they were a couple of days before they were birth. And maybe a three year old is a great case because doesn't does a, does a three year old know what it is? Can it you know produce anything for us? Then no, maybe it's not going to be human. Is that the problem? Funda- I mean, do, do you think that? The pro-abortion community has the burden of consistency that we do.
0: I, I think that uh, you're you're absolutely right that there is this um, this thought on the pro-abortion side and and on the the pro my truth is is what is truth side that you know if I if I want it to be it is. So I imagine that for many couples who had done IVF, um, who, um, who read about this case, I imagine that their hearts broke for that family who lost their three embryos. Um, I imagine that many moms who conceived through IVF recognize like, oh my gosh, that was, that would be devastating to have that happen. Um but it's the question of are are you willing to recognize why it's devastating are you re- willing to to be consistent in the in the hard times cuz it, it's easy to say that all life is precious when you're able to have children immediately after you get married but you know the friends of mine who have struggled with infertility for 10 plus years those those are the people who are heroic um and 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 that moral consistency does require heroic virtue. And that's something that we need to be working to foster every day. Yeah.
1: Another point on consistency and trying to connect some dots with other cultural conversations. In the last week, the New York Times ran an obituary for a man named Stephen Wise, who was a law professor and animal rights activist. And one of the things that he somewhat famously said, is that he didn't see much of a difference between his four-year-old and a chimpanzee. And he had argued in court, he'd filed lawsuits with the purpose of giving chimpanzees human rights and to free them from captivity. And the argument he made, of course, was that, well, chimpanzees are very similar to humans. They, I mean, they, they are, of course, like... They have more capacity than you know a salamander does, other parts of the animal kingdom, and, and we kind of feel like we can relate to chimpanzees, and they are cute, and they're fun, and we've seen them do impressive things, right? And so he said, on the basis of that capacity, those chimpanzees deserve human rights. And when we, when we root our humanity or our recognition of humanity in our capacities— What it does is raise these interesting questions that Stephen Weiss raised is, if I look at an adult chimpanzee and a four-year-old, who has more capacity? And a four-year-old, he thinks it's a great case. I mean, when you're comparing a two-year-old to a chimpanzee or a one-year-old or an eight-month-old, it's probably not much of a case. So the chimpanzee can do more than the six-month-old. Does that mean that the chimpanzee deserves more rights because of its ability. And is that necessarily where this leads? And is Stephen Wise kind of consistently applying this logic if ultimately we root our humanity in our capacities?
0: Yeah, what, you're, what you're describing is a challenge that people with disabilities face every day, right? That, that when we adopt a functionalist mentality, then we think that your worth depends on what you can do. And so um, someone like my sister, who has both physical and intellectual disabilities, um, she's often treated as less than others. You know, people people will talk about her when she's in the room with them as if she's just not there Um, or they'll they'll point at her. They'll stare at her. Um, I have a I have a good friend who. Um, is is blind, and she is one of the smartest people that I have ever met. She, in fact, clerked on the Supreme Court, and the number of times that people have underestimated her ability simply because she is blind, um, or people have spoken, you know, negatively about her, or she's talked about instances of discrimination that she has faced, um, it does show that that in the United States and and in Europe. Um, we really, there really is this mentality of you are good because you can do something or because you, um, because you have a special ability. Um, and, and we need to get back to a place where people are good because they're a human being, um, and because they're all created in the image of God.
1: And that is the difference. That is the the debate that we're having right now is, do our human rights come from our capacities, the things that we can do, or are they rooted in the idea that we exist and we were created in the image of God? That is the fundamental question. And to connect this conversation to another conversation we've been having culturally lately, a reporter from Politico named Heidi Prisbilla, recently went on MSNBC during an interview and she was describing Christian nationalism in in this very ominous, in, in ominous tones, all of the reasons we should be scared of Trump supporters, right? And she said, the thing that unites Christian nationalists drumroll please, and she knew this was going to be horrifying, breaking news, she said, is because they all believe their rights come from God. And she specifically clarified they don't believe their rights come from government or from the Supreme Court, as if that's what we're all, all the smart people are supposed to recognize our rights come from the government, not God. And there was so much about that story that was shocking because – she clearly is totally unfamiliar with the Declaration of Independence, which very clearly states that our rights, our inalienable rights, are endowed on us by our creator, which implies our creator is a supernatural being. We were created, and the rights come by virtue of our creation. But the Heidi Prisbillas of the world, who think it's horrifying that people believe our rights come from God rather than our government, the the world in which she that she is trying to create for us is the world that certainly allows us to discard unimplanted embryos because what value do they have to anyone the government doesn't think they're useful therefore they don't have any rights because there is no image of god to rely upon but the world that she's going to create for us is one in which well whether it's congress or the supreme court they decide if we have rights isn't that fundamentally what this debate about IVF boils down to is where our rights come from
0: i think i think it is and i think that the world she's describing is a terrifying one i mean can you it's it's exactly what the founders wanted to avoid that's why that's why we enumerated our rights we didn't suddenly create them when we're uh, writing the constitution that's why in the declaration of independence we said that that these are from, from the creator. Um, you know, I think when we, when we look to government as the arbiter of human rights, that's, that's when we end up with human rights abuses. Um, and, and we've seen this throughout history. Um, slavery was legal in the United States. It wasn't something that was, that was done on the side. This was a legalized activity. Um, and it was considered, the right of men to own other men, um, right. and, and that's that's a terrifying thought. Um, the fact that we believe our rights come from God tells us regardless of what the government is doing, regardless of what is going on, there are things that every human being um, is is deserving of simply because they they are human beings.
1: And we either accept that, which logically requires us to conclude that an implanted embryo, which has all of the DNA of the 80-year-old version of that person, is a human.
0: And an or, unimplanted one.
1: Or in an unimplanted, right. An unimplanted and an implanted, right, regardless of location, has all of that information, is inherently created in the image of God the moment it is conceived, or the, the alternative to that world is the world that... Heidi Prisbilla and Stephen Wise would like to create for us where the rights don't come from God. We don't recognize the image of God and therefore rights are bestowed by the Supreme Court or the government in some way based on whatever value the government perceives that you have. And if you are valuable to them, then they will protect your existence because they can tax you and support itself. If they don't find you valuable, then at their discretion, they can take away your human rights and they can just eliminate you because they want to. And nobody has the right to object because the government is the source of our rights. That really is a terrifying future, isn't it?
0: It is. And and we're seeing which politicians actually believe that their rights come from God um, yeah. and which ones um, believe that they're the, the arbiters of, of right and wrong. Um, And, and I think a lot of our politicians right now are feeling a lot of pressure to um, say something in defense of IVF and um, condemning the Alabama Supreme court. Um, And, and I think that that is um, it's, it's, it's a really a test for, for our politicians in this country right now to see who is willing to stand up for a consistent view of life. Who's willing to stand up for what is truth um, and who uh, is willing to say anything to be reelected.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because what I think we will discover in Alabama in the the short term and maybe around the country in the long term is that there's a lot of people who are pro-life because politically it's convenient to be pro-life. But they may not have thought through the ethics of what it means to be pro-life. Why are they pro-life? Are they pro-life because they were raised in the church and their constituency is pro-life and so it's convenient to say that? Or are they pro-life because they've actually thought through the differences between a world in which our rights come from God and the rights come from government? And they they, they want to live and think and act consistently with those beliefs. Because to be sure, there are hard cases. Right, there are hard cases. It is difficult to live in a world where unimplanted embryo—that is inconvenient truth. It is also an inconvenient truth to recognize that somebody who is seri- severely disabled is still created in the image of God and has human rights. That is a burden. It is also a blessing and a joy to give and somebody dignity by serving them. But that is not a diff. That is not an easy thing to do. You can make the argument that it would be, you know, it's more convenient for everybody just to relieve them of their suffering and let them move on, and then we don't have to take care of them anymore. So there are challenges, but I would suggest, in in large part because it's consistent with truth, that the burdens of challenges of recognizing the image of God in a person, regardless of what they're capable of, are far less than the burdens of challenges of saying your capacity determines your humanity, and the government gets to determine if you have rights or not based on how useful they find you to be.
0: Absolutely. And I think um, the, there's a huge burden on us to um, to educate people. You know, it's not like IVF just started happening two years ago, and this Supreme Court case popped up, uh, Alabama Supreme Court case popped up out of thin air this is something that has been going on now for for years. Um and and how many times do we hear pastors or priests speak about IVF? I know I know my priest on Sunday talked about IVF at mass and and he did so in a in a very beautiful way where where he talked about he said, you know, what what makes something a sin? Well, it has to be wrong. You have to know it's wrong and you have to do it anyway. And so if you didn't know that IVF was wrong before, I'm telling you, I'm telling you now. And, and now, you know, and um, you know, I heard of a, of another pastor who a, a woman went to, and she said, look, I didn't, I didn't know it was wrong. And I have three embryos and they're frozen and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, can I walk with you and your husband through that process? Like, can I, can I accompany you on that journey? And can I help you figure out what we're going to do next? Cause yes, this was wrong, but, we're in this position now. So where do we go from here? But, but we need to be helping people before they get to that position. You know, there, there is this idea that the only quote unquote solution to infertility is IVF, but, but there are all sorts of other avenues. Napro technology, that's something that my husband and I have um, used ourselves where, you know, a, a physicians look for the underlying cause of what is at the root of miscarriage. What's at the root of infertility? Is there a health problem with the woman or the man that they can figure out that brings people to to a healthier space themselves, not just, um, for, not just puts a Band-Aid on something and then produces a child for, for the sake of having a child and saying, let's just move on. Um, we We need to be doing more to educate people on on the other options and and on why IVF is wrong.
1: Mary, you previously mentioned the millions, I think you said of unimplanted frozen embryos that currently exist. What is the pro-life response to that situation?
0: You know, I think that this is um, this is one of those, Things that it's it's uh, a tragedy that that should have never occurred um, that I think um, this is something that you know if we believe that all of these frozen embryos are persons the pro-life response cannot be to destroy them it cannot be to experiment on them um, and and it cannot be to, um, allow them to be used for, for research purposes. They need to be treated with dignity and with respect. I think that there is debate as to whether or not, um, treating those embryos with respect means that you, um, that you have couples who are willing to adopt them or that you, you know, store them indefinitely. Um, we know that in the thawing out process that, that, uh, many of those embryos die. Um, so I think, I think that this is a really challenging question um, of what to do, but we know what we can't do, right? We know that we can't do research on these embryos um, and we can't destroy them um, because both of those are disrespectful yep. to human life.
1: And that question may be raising the possibility for some people or the awareness for some people of the first time of the fact that there is such a thing as embryo adoption. And I, and I know, um, I know a young lady who is the age of my oldest daughter, who's right now 19, who was frozen for 20 years or something like that as an embryo and, uh, and then, um, adopted and and that thing, that kind of situation is happening now. Um, I don't know if that will ever become so popular that you actually like solve the problem of frozen embryos and my, my guess right now is no, but uh, you know, that's a challenging, that's a challenging ethical question, but you know, for the purposes of what we do here on outstanding all the time is try to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If we care about the truth, we need to be consistent. And that has to be a goal of ours. And we can't just look at something and say, well, if this is the result, that's convenient to me. That is not a satisfactory answer to truth seekers. We need to find out what is the the truth of the matter that we can apply across the board in more than just the current fact set that we're dealing with that will lead to human flourishing in a better world that's consistent with truth as God has revealed it to us. And sometimes that's complicated. And and we have come across that certainly here is there are not simple answers, but there are better answers than others. Um, but what we have to care about is not the convenience in the short term like benefit or certainly for politicians, the, the, the short term political benefit of whatever conclusion that we reach. But we need to think about what does this mean 500 years from now? If the principle that we adopt right now is applied across all fact patterns for the next, you know, 10 generations, what does that world look like? And uh, if we don't care about that stuff, then probably what we're most interested in is whatever makes us comfortable or makes our life easiest right now. And if that is our principle, we end up creating a terrible world because goodness is very, very often um, uncomfortable and inconvenient, but it's still good. So Mary, I mean, there's a lot more to go through here, but uh, thank you for your, your thinking on this and, and your time. And I look forward uh, to continuing to cover this because uh, these issues are not going away.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And friends, we thank you for joining us uh, on this episode of Outstanding. If you have any comments, questions, responses, now please email me at, outstanding at washingtonstand.com. Love to hear your thoughts. We know that we have been uh, provocative here um, and hopefully in in... Helpful ways, um, but uh, these subjects are necessarily uh, provocative. Also, make sure you like and subscribe, share it with a friend if you've learned something. You can help them kind of think through uh, these difficult issues, and that also helps people find out about the show. And new episodes are re- released every Tuesday and Friday, so do make sure you like and subscribe so you'll get the next one. It's been my pleasure to be with you this time. Look forward to the next one. My name is Joseph Back, and this has been outstanding.
0: Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.